This is Windmill 282 calling Trap 1. Trap 1, are you receiving? Over. This is Trap One. I'm Mark McManus. I'm delighted to welcome Jason Miller back to the podcast this week. How are you, sir? It's great to be back. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. As anyone listening last time might remember, you blog about the, the target range um, of books and novelizations of the, the classic series stories. Uh, so pretty yes. exciting news recently that the, the range is being resurrected with the new series novelizations. I was very excited to hear that news because one of the biggest disappointments about the new series is that I don't have the novelizations to keep me busy in between seasons. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I decided to go on Facebook where I belong to a Facebook group that's dedicated to the Target books. And it turns out I was just about the only person who was excited about the return of the novelizations. Really? There's a lot of negative fan expectations, it seems, at least us one Facebook group about the return of the Target books. Yeah. It does seem like every piece of news that comes out is met quite often by a kind of miasma of negativity, doesn't it? We would not uh, be Doctor Who fans if we greeted everything with happy, (laughs) good joy. There's always got to be somebody who complains about something. Yeah, it just seems to be... I don't know, it just seems to be like the, the overwhelming response sometimes, isn't it? It's, um, uh, I, think, I think it's terrific news. So it, it's um, going to be April 2018. Uh, we're getting Rose novelized by Russell T. Davis. The Christmas Invasion, novel, um, written by Jenny Colgan. Uh, Who's terrific. Yeah, she, she's um, obviously written a couple of uh, original novels, hasn't she? She did the... Um, Oh, the Tenth Doctor one that um, that came out. I know the name of it. It's, it's got blood in the title, but I can't think what it is. It took place in uh, Scotland, if memory serves me right. Um, do, there, is that not the Viking one? Um, yes, the Viking one. Yes. Yes, yeah, since Vikings then she's made Scotland. Yeah, since then she has done another one. Um. All right. So, Dark Horizons was her first book that That's, came out uh, about five years ago. That was. That's the Viking, the Viking one. one. Yeah, about the, the, the it's the sort of origins of the chess set that was found, wasn't it? That um, is one of the earliest examples. Then, yes. And then more recently, there is um, a, a Tenth Doctor one, um, which came out, I think, last year. Into the Blood. Into the Blood, that's the one, yeah, which is, um, yeah, which I think is a second Doctor Who one. Yes, uh, which I regrettably have not tackled yet. That's part of my mounting backlog. Yeah, I, I in the blood. I haven't, I haven't read that one either. I've got it, but it's, uh, it's, it's on my, on my to read pile, unfortunately. But uh, what's interesting yeah. about Jenny Colgan doing one of the new novelizations is that she's the only author who is not adapting her own TV script. The fact that we have Stephen Moffat novelizing some of his own stories is tremendously exciting news. 
It is. Well, he's doing Day of the Doctor, um, but Paul Cornell is doing Twice Upon a Time. Oh, um, I did not hear that. That's even better news. Love yeah, Paul Cornell. The, well, yeah, the original press announcement had Stephen Moffat writing, uh, adapting both of his stories there. Um, but then I think the official announcement confirmed it was Paul Cornell, who, yeah, I absolutely love Paul Cornell's writing. Um, I've been with him for literally 25 years, so this is great news. Yeah, well, it's always a relief with Paul Cornell as well because he keeps sort of announcing um, <laughs> leaving Doctor Who writing. Um, I think when he did um, The Girl Who Loved Doctor Who, which was a, um, a, a, a comic strip that came out around the 50th anniversary, there were some suggestions in interviews that that would be his last uh, Doctor Who work. Then he came back and did um, Four Doctors, um, which is another comic run, and then more, most recently he did uh, Heralds of Destruction, which is a third Doctor one. And that. Comes... And then on his on his blog, he announced that he was done with uh, spin-off media. That's it. That he would only work. He was only going to work on his own characters from from now on. Um, but yeah, but this is uh, this is great news that he's uh, he's going to adapt uh, this. I guess there's a there's a generation of Doctor Who writers that grew up on the Target novelizations, and it's kind of the the fulfillment of, um, you know, of a childhood dream, isn't it, to, to write one of your own? So. The two biggest complaints that I saw on the internet about the new novelizations, number one is that you don't need the novelizations because you already have the DVDs or the streaming on BritBox, yeah. which to my mind doesn't make any sense because a good book is a very different creature from a TV episode. Absolutely. And the second complaint that I read is that the books were going to be too expensive considering the original Target books, at least in the U.S., were $3 a piece, which was tremendously affordable back in the 1980s. Yeah. But if you're getting Russell T. Davies and B. Paul Cornell and Jenny Colgan and Stephen Moffat to write your books, I'll pay a few extra bucks for that. Yeah, absolutely. And the price of everything has gone up since, uh, <laughs> since the Target novelization started, haven't they? Um, there are no more three dollar books. Yes. Yeah, it's um, yeah, that's crazy. Because uh, one thing I remember when um, when the Doctor's wife was broadcast, um, there there was an interview or uh, or something written by Neil Gaiman where he said that he'd he'd looked into the possibility of novelising it because there was so much material that he couldn't fit into the episode, um, but he just kind of couldn't fit it into his schedule. Um, but if that ever came up in the future, that would be that would be fantastic to see what was missed from that one, and written by Neil Gaiman as well. I mean, it's great enough that we already had a Michael Moorcock Doctor Who novel. A Neil Gaiman Doctor Who novel would just be over the top. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess he's got his hands full at the moment because he's um, he's showrunning Good Omens, I think. Um, yes. Plus, American Gods is he's yeah he got a second series so. Um, I guess he, he might have his hands full for the foreseeable, but uh, yeah, it would be be fantastic if the range continues if they, if they approach him when he uh, when he's got time later on, hopefully. Uh, yeah, no, three or four new Target novelizations a year would keep me happy until old age. That's yeah, for sure. <laughs> definitely. I think um, the one I'm, I'm probably most excited about is Day of the Doctor. Um, I remember um, the uh, you know in the Doctor Who magazine the Fact of Fiction. Which I think actually, um, this one was written by Jonathan Morris, who, who's written Plague City that we're going to discuss today. Um, and obviously had access to the original scripts and things like that. Um, and there was a lot of really cool stuff in there that, that didn't make it into the final, final episode, which it would be, be nice to see 
um, expanded into the book. Um, so that, that one should be particularly good. And uh, there was an interview with Stephen Moffat, um, and the reason he picked this one was because he he, he kind of there's a bit more to it, and there's um, there's what he um, he was describing. You know, he might play around with the the order of events, I think, because he's saying because it, it jumps about in time. You know, what what order is it actually happening? So there's definitely new spins he can put on that one. Uh, so absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like with the novelizations of the Douglas Adams stories, you have the authors able to go into the Douglas Adams archives and find all this material that nobody knew existed. Yeah, yeah. So a planet by James Goss could be 400 pages and include all sorts of material that nobody knew about until James Goss got permission to go into the Douglas Adams archives. That's it. And then, and then even more excitingly, there's, uh, which is coming out in January, I think, is the, the Cricket Men. Um, which is a Doctor Who story that um, kind of didn't make it ever, obviously, in, uh, onto script form or anything like that. So he's um, he's novelised that, and that's coming out soon. So that's uh, that's like getting a new Douglas Adams story. So that's one I'm, I'm yes, excited about. Yes, nobody has year, read though. before. Yeah, so that that one uh, potentially very exciting. Yeah, I mean, talking about kind of getting all these big name writers into the range. I think the reason that. Douglas Adams never adapted them in the first place was that they couldn't afford him, basically, wasn't it? Because uh, there's a quote from him that's something like, uh, you know, I've got I've got a habit of writing best-selling novels or something like that. Uh, uh, yes. So, uh, Once yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide made him an instant millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> he was no longer, uh, he, was, he was priced out of the uh, Target contract, which was uh, pennies on the dollar, to use an American expression. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's great that they're finally happening. Yeah, so they're doing it with a big budget so they can afford Davies and Moffat and Paul Cornell. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and hopefully Neil Gaiman. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think Jonathan Morris, uh, as well as I say we're going to discuss today, would be a great candidate for these. He's a very kind of witty writer, and, uh, and the, the novels that he's written for the, for the BBC range, he's great at, at kind of capturing those characters and, and, you know, fitting the novels into the time... Um, that they're set in. Uh, you know, he's got kind of an ear for the voices, and uh, I think he'd be a great a great choice if they can get him to do some as well. And he has a particular skill set for writing very complex material about temporal paradoxes and multiple timelines. Yeah. So there are several new series episodes that would just be right in his wheelhouse. Definitely. Um, for example, if uh, Stephen Moffat is too busy to adapt a girl in the fireplace, that would be uh, Jonathan Morris' uh, specialty, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because thinking about, I think I think I'm right in saying his first Doctor Who novel was Festival of Death. Um, which One of is, my favorites. It's brilliant, isn't it? But it's very, um, very kind of uh, convoluted time-wise, isn't it? The um, the way it happens in in different periods and things. Um, but he and does it in a way that further, further back in time, and they keep uncovering more and more of the plot. Yeah. Um, but ne but never in a way that you 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 know you can always follow exactly what's happening, um, which you feel like a you know another writer may not have been quite so deft in uh, in making it clear. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant book that one. Yeah, and I didn't read it till it was republished for the fiftieth anniversary. Um, I, I missed it the first time round. Um, but yeah, it's it's excellent, well worth picking up if uh, if anybody listening hasn't read that one. Please, please do, yeah. with my compliments. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, Jonathan Morris, uh, he's just taken over, um, well, he's replaced a column in the Doctor Who magazine. 
the former watcher on the sort of um, the inside back page, uh, who's obviously uh, left the magazine recently and, and uh, <laughs> quite publicly. Um, he's now doing, and if you've seen yes. this, uh, the, the diary of, of, of kind of minor Doctor Who characters from stories, which the first one came out in the most recent issue. Uh, I thought it was excellent, and there's a lot of potential in uh, in these. And hopefully he will not duplicate his predecessor's habit of embedding nasty acrostics inside his columns. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that lesson's probably been learned, hasn't it? So <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, but yeah, I thought the first one; those were very witty, and he's he's, he's a really kind of funny, witty writer as well. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to this um, to his uh, his new column progressing. Because uh, previous ones that he's done, where he did like the Diary of the Master, um, and he's done kind of similar things to the Daleks and the Cybermen, uh, have been absolutely hilarious. So uh, yeah, I think this is going to be uh, going to be a good thing to to uh, to follow. So, and when we decided that Plague City was going to be the next book that we covered, I was I didn't know much about it at the time. I was looking forward to a typical traditional Jonathan Morris book with a lot of timelines and a lot of convoluted temporal goings-on, and I was quite surprised to get deep into the book and realize that I was reading a different type of story entirely. Most of the book did not really feel like the Jonathan Morris that I've been familiar with since Festival of Death came out, although just as good in its own way, of course. Yeah. It took a while for me to get to the Jonathan Morris parts of the book. Yeah. Um, but very witty as well, which which you, which you expect from his work, I think. Particularly... He captures the voices amazingly well, especially uh, you have three very funny characters with the Twelfth Doctor, Anvil, and especially Nardole. This is the first Nardole book that I've read. He gets all three of their voices very well. The dialogue just crackles off the page. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, the uh, the interplay between the three three of them is is excellent. Um, yeah, I wonder. Um, I wonder how that decision was made that uh, of the three novels that came out together, that Nardole would only appear in this one. Uh, you know, whether it was the the author's choice or, um, you know, whether it was a decision from the editor or anything like that. It was probably an editorial decision with Nardole not being very well integrated into the first few episodes. It took a while for Nardole to actually join the TARDIS on its travels. Yeah. So it made sense to not put him inside every book. Yeah, yeah, true. It's, uh, but yeah, he's, he's captured particularly well here, I think. Uh, so it's, uh, it's good. So um, the uh, this is kind of the historical one of the three, isn't it? They, they tend to um, release the BBC books with a contemporary earth, a, a, a future science fiction setting, and a, and a historical setting. And with Diamond Dogs, you and I already covered the future story. That's it, and um, the, the Shining Man was set on contemporary earth, uh, well, contemporary Britain, as, as they usually are. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a great crop of books as well. Um, all three of them really, really strong, I think. But... What worried me as an American reader is this book takes place in Edinburgh, or Edinburgh in 1640, 1645, yeah. and I know very little about the history of 17th century Scotland. <laughs> no, so I yeah, expected it was going to be a steep learning curve for me, understanding who was what. Yeah. Fortunately, things are uh, very narrowly focused, so you don't need 
to have an encyclopedic knowledge of 17th century Scottish history to enjoy this book. That's no, the good news. Absolutely. And um, how, how did you get on with the, the kind of the Scottish dialect? Some of the characters, um, you know, kind of speak uh, authentically Scottish. Was, uh, was that, that causing any problems for you? I was a little concerned in the beginning because at least in America, when an author writes in dialect, it usually is meant in a pejorative way. This character is not permitted to speak full English because he's something less than human. So when you have all these Scottish characters, in other words, everybody in the book except for the three regulars, when they're all speaking in heavy Scottish dialect, at first I was afraid that this might be considered offensive. But after a couple of pages, that concern pretty quickly vanished. These are all very well-rounded characters. And the best way of capturing the Scottish accent, at least to my American ear, was to have the dialect there on the page. So I was a little yeah. worried in the beginning, but by the second or third chapter, it was no problem for me at all. Ah, great. There were a couple of words that I just didn't understand that I picked up in context. So by the end, I could probably speak with a Scottish accent myself. Yeah. <laughs> which I will not torture your audience with, I promise. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I won't attempt that either. I only live about 10 minutes from the Scottish border as well, but I, yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't want to offend anybody. <laughs> no, we will do you the courtesy of yeah. uh, doing the rest of this podcast in yeah. our native accent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, uh, so as you say, it's, um, it's set in Edinburgh in the, uh, the 17th century, um, where as the title suggests, there is a, a pretty nasty strain of the plague running amok through the population. Um, uh, so there's a quarantine in place, um, which I thought helped to give it a, quite a, a claustrophobic kind of almost base under siege atmosphere, didn't it? By by the way, it was um, uh, you know the, there was no escape for the uh, well apart from the uh, the regulars who nearly decide to leave. Um, it does give it a, like say a claustrophobic enclosed. No one can escape the plague and the other nasty goings on there. You could navigate your way around Edinburgh thanks to Jonathan Morris's writing. Yeah. <laughs> because it is a small cast of characters and the book takes place only in a few sets. Yeah, and you get um, you get a nice cross-section of the society as well, don't you? Because there's the uh, the Lord Provost um, who's in charge of the city right down to uh, a few of the, the inhabitants as well, um, plus, plus the Plague Doctor. So it's, right, and then uh, there's a couple of new sets added for the second half of the book, which we'll come to. But the first third of the book is a straight-up historical, so it's only about a half dozen named Scottish characters on top of the three regulars. That's it, yeah. So we, uh, first of all, we meet Thomas and Isabel, um, whose daughter Catherine has the plague um, when she is visited by the Night Doctor, um, which I, I thought this was something it's... Um, you'd think maybe would have cropped up in Doctor Who before because the, the plague doctors are kind of terrifying looking, aren't they? Um, with the, uh, the mask and the kind of goggle eyes and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, it seems like something that, that, uh, that it picked up on before, uh, and used as, as, uh, to, to scary effect. Um, but you it's, have uh, a small tenement apartment takes place at night. It's candlelit. And all of a sudden you hear a strange knocking on the door and you open the door, and it is a figure dressed in a mask and a cowl, and does not look human at all. Yeah. 
Uh, that will set your hair tingling uh, very early on. Uh, so the and the, the the kind of legend has it that the a visit from the night doctor means you're about to die from the plague. So uh, for for Thomas and Isabel, it's um, it's equally even more terrifying because uh, their their daughter gets one visit and then a second visit from the night doctor and the second visit is uh, is taken away. Uh, so yeah, it's all um, yeah, it's all quite scary, really, isn't it? It's uh, you know that idea of being taken away and and all the rest of it. It's, um, yeah, it sets the scene quite well. It's almost like the pre-titles, isn't it, that bit, actually? Before the opening the teaser, yes, before yeah. the opening credits. It was a very unsettling first chapter. Yeah. Um, and then the TARDIS arrives. They're, they're heading for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, aren't they, the, the Dr. Bill and Nardole? Um, but in, in typical Doctor Who style, they've, uh, they've missed uh, the right time in this case and, uh, and landed a few centuries early. And the doctor is very defensive about only landing three centuries out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In all of time and space, it's not uh, it's not a huge amount, is it, to uh, to miss by? Yeah. <laughs> no, and then you have a very funny debate going on where Nadal wants to know why he can't speak in a Scottish accent like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> and the doctor says, "You don't even have the right accent." And Nardole shoots back, and you do. Yeah. And Capaldi goes, that's entirely different. Yeah. And Nardole goes, I don't see why you get to be Scottish, and I don't, which just had me laughing out loud. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. And then it's something that um, maybe Jonathan Morris wouldn't have known at the time, but it's picked up later on than this in, in the TV series when um, they arrive in Scotland um, for the... I've forgotten the name of the episode, the one with the... Um, Eaters of the Light. Yes, the Rona Monroe story. Yeah, because uh, Nadal tries to to integrate, doesn't he? When um, when he thinks the Doctor isn't coming back, he um, he uh, he paints his face and starts trying to talk with a Scottish accent then as well. <laughs> with, with very comedic result, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's great that bit. Uh, so they uh, when they arrive, there's a there's a curfew, um, in place. Uh, so they, they get chased by some guards and they all split up. Um, and Bill finds herself um, hiding away with uh, Betsy and Agnes, who initially are quite kind of cre- two creepy old women, aren't they? That um, they're, they're like the old ladies in the Paradise Towers or something where you think they're hiding something. Uh, That's what I was about to say. You have these two creepy old ladies who offer to feed Bill, and my immediate thought, for those of us of a certain age, are the two creepy cannibal ladies, Tabby and Tilda, in Paradise Towers. Yeah, yeah. We that's... try to turn Bill into lunch. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly who that reminded me of, yeah. Um, but fortunately, he takes them off in a very different direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think he really gets the character of Bill in these scenes as well when she's off on her own um that she is just very kind of friendly and uh she'll she'll just kind of you know kind of talk to anybody and try and befriend them um i thought those scenes yeah really served her well especially because betsy has a secret and she does not want bill to figure out her secret and she tries to push bill away but bill keeps coming back yeah um did you did you guess what that was actually? I, I kind of did not to begin with, um, but as the story took shape, uh, I kind of uh, I figured it out about one chapter before Jonathan Morris announced the reveal, but that meant several chapters went by before I had not figured it out. Yeah, 
It's um, yeah, but, it's, it's quite deftly done, isn't it? But before we get to that secret, the doctor splits up and he runs in a different direction from Bill. Yeah. And he turns around, and Nardola's right next to him. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor says, I thought I told you to split up. And Nardola says, I thought I'd split up with you. Yeah. <laughs> he does have some absolutely brilliant lines uh, in this story, doesn't he? There's, um, there's a bit, actually, in case I forget when we get to it, where the doctor's left him to, to watch something or keep guard. Um, and at the end of it, he's congratulating himself that he's never taken his eyes away, that he hasn't even gone to the toilet, <laughs> and he's having this internal monologue. <laughs> yes, yes. He's having an internal monologue where he says, uh, maybe he should mention to the doctor that he hasn't even been to the toilet. And he goes, no, I'll just, um, it's enough that I know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the satisfaction of a job well done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the doctor and Nardo quickly are caught up in the Thomas and Isabel plot, Mm. because they see the ghost of Thomas and Isabel's daughter entering the building. Yeah. And they quickly realize that there are ghosts stalking the premises. Yeah. And that gives us a clue that this is not going to be a straight-up historical. No, absolutely. Um, what surprised me slightly is that the, the Doctor doesn't make any reference to um, the two-parter from uh, series... Nine, um, it's a nice series. Nine, isn't it? Under the lake and before the flood. Yes. Um, which is a you know relatively recent. Right. So go on. Huh. Interesting. I wonder why. I guess he didn't have time with that in. Yeah, it's because um, it, 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 would not have been there for that story. No, but I kind of thought it was a relatively recent adventure for him to have where, where there were ghosts. So even just as part of his kind of deductive reasoning to, to think, um, you know, or could it be um, another example of, uh, of this, the spe same species as the Fisher King or something like that. But uh, yeah, just, um, yeah, I did wonder about that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, but he does have time for the 12th Doctor to start channeling the 4th Doctor and quoting Shakespeare when he sees the ghost. He starts quoting Hamlet. Yeah, it's a very fourth doctor thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, as well, the other difference is these ghosts, unlike the ones in the uh, the uh, under the lake, is that they can talk as well. They can they can interact with people. Um, so in the case of, of Catherine, Thomas and Isabel's daughter, she's asking to be let back in and doesn't understand why they won't let her back in the house. Um, which uh, which again is quite quite creepy, isn't it? They. Uh, they're kind of cowering inside, and the ghost of their daughter's outside. You know, let me in. I suppose it's like um, Wuthering Heights or something, isn't it? Where uh, the ghost of Kathy or the uh, Heathcliff thinks the ghost. It's a long time since I've read this. There's a scene where the ghost <laughs> of Kathy. Yeah, the ghost of Kathy, I think, is he's, he's either having a nightmare or a delusion or something. The ghost of Kathy's outside the window trying to get in. Um, but yeah, it's, I haven't read that since I was at university, so I, <laughs> it's only it's only occurred to me now that it's, it's it's similar to that. I should have looked it up. Um, That's been twenty years for me. But these are ghosts yeah. who do not realize that they are dead. Yeah, it's uh, which I'm, is a twist. Most mythology. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there is a scientific explanation given for it much later in the book. Yes. So. Bill has spent the night at Betsy and Agnes's house um, yes. and eaten all their food. 
eating all their food. So she decides to go to the market to to replenish it for them. Um, first of all, she goes to the TARDIS to try and get some money, but there's nobody there, and the Doctor and Nardole aren't in the TARDIS where she expected them to be. Um, so she decides to do the next best thing, which is to get herself arrested. Yeah, which I thought was a clever kind of, and it's a very Doctor-like move, isn't it? Because um, she's assumed that the Doctor and Nardole have been arrested for, for breaking curfew. So by getting arrested, they can be reunited, and then the Doctor, uh, uh, together, they'll engineer uh, an escape plan. Um, and before the psychic paper in the classic series, that was how, how you got through the story. Capture, escape, capture. Mm-hmm. That was that was how you met who was in charge. Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought it was a nice move, and it and it does pay off because well, not at first because um, she's taken to meet the the Lord Provost, uh, who's in in charge of Edinburgh, uh, who's called John Smith, um, which again was a nice touch because it, it forces the Doctor to come up with a different alias, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, and he chooses Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah, <laughs> he's not a surgeon as opposed to the later author. Yeah, but before before that, before the Doctor and Nardole turn up, she's um, actually they thought that she was a plague carrier because yeah. based on her skin, or they assumed she was a pirate who would have been carrying the plague. Yeah, and um, because the plague's such a big deal, uh, and and Smith is kind of got some really harsh measures to try and keep it in, in check, hasn't he? Um, so she's sentenced to death, but the Doctor turns up in the nick of time. Um, uh, and uh, uses the psychic paper, as you say, to claim that he's, uh, he's, he's a surgeon. Of course, the funny thing is that at the exact moment that Bill is accused of being a plague carrier, she notices an itching on her leg Yeah. where she has been bitten, and it turns out she actually has the plague. Yeah, um, but uh, they only discover this when they get back to the TARDIS, don't they, which... I mean, you never buy that early in the book that they're going to they all get back to the TARDIS ready to take off. <laughs> it was a false finish. By the end of Chapter 4, Bill has been given an antibiotic, she's cured, and everyone yeah. is ready to leave. That's it. All right, that was a short book. Okay, we're yeah. done. Thanks. <laughs> Great talking to you. But not so fast. Yeah, so the, um, Bill wants, still wants to help Betsy and Agnes, and um, the Doctor can't resist the talking ghosts uh, investigating what's going on. So, but Bill pockets the um, the antibiotics, doesn't she? The she's she's taking a pill to cure the plague. Um, and I'm I'm right in saying it's Bill, I think. She yeah yeah she so she takes those, goes back to visit Betsy and Agnes. Um, but first of all, they have a discussion, don't they, where the Bill questions why the doctor can't hand out the the pills to everybody, um, and and save people from dying of the plague. So we get another discussion about kind of changing history and. Uh, and everything like that, which um, harks back to sort of Pfizer Pompeii and the girl who died and other stories and, and kind of the ramifications of doing it, I suppose. Um, and the Pfizer Pompeii is the one that jumped out for me because the doctor and Donna had that long conversation about this is established history. You cannot save one person. Yeah. And, of course, at the end of Fires of Pompeii, the doctor does decide to save one family, which has... Significant ramifications for the future of the series. Yeah, because it's um, it's why the Doctor subconsciously gives himself the face, isn't it, of uh, of one of the characters from that story? So uh, to explain the casting of Peter Capaldi. Because Peter Capaldi was the character that he saves 
in the family in the fires of Pompeii. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it's it's that reminder <laughs> that he can save somebody, which I guess goes on to explain um, his actions later on in the book, and particularly in the finale here, doesn't it? Without explicitly it being said in the book. The doctor establishes a bright line rule. We cannot save a single person. And of course, yeah. he goes on to break that rule over and over yeah. and over again throughout the course of the book. Yeah. Almost immediately. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's. Um, it, I suppose it plays with the idea that, you know, even within Doctor Who, that it's, it's, it's never been hard and fast, has it? That uh, the, there is no rule. Uh, you know, in the way that, um, you know, some science fiction series has a rule like you know the prime directive in star trek or something and it's 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 you either either contravenient or not uh it's been pretty haphazard throughout the series of doctor who uh well, the, yeah. the aztecs we learned in season one you cannot rewrite history not one line yeah and then by the next historical the romans they're rewriting pretty much everything yeah <laughs> um so yeah it was, it's kind of nice that the um that Bill particularly, as she did in the TV show, is is, is questioning the Doctor and, and and calling him out on it as well when he um, when he contradicts himself. Yes. So the the group leaves the TARDIS and they go back. <clears throat> Bill goes back and she provides food for Betsy and Agnes, and the Doctor goes back to inspect Thomas and Isabel and see what sort of ghosts are plaguing them. Yeah. And while they're walking along Edinburgh, Bill finds not just one ghost, but an army of ghosts. Yeah. There's, uh, I think this is when she's at Betsy. Well, Agnes is out, isn't she? Um, which is slightly suspicious because Betsy's previously said that Agnes doesn't really go out very much. Um, right, Agnes is not home. Yeah, and then Bill's looking out of the window, uh, and that's when she initially sees the ghosts and, and goes down to investigate. So at this point, actually, I've got a reading from Kate Coleman, um, which we will uh, we'll go to now, um, which is, is describing what happens when, when Bill goes down there. It was as if the city had come to life at night. Bill halted in the alleyway, her heart pounding, looking out to the high street, the flagstones shining in the misty moonlight. There were, she guessed, over 500 ghosts on the street, all walking slowly to their destinations. They looked solid and could almost be real people, were it not for the mortuary slab faces, their heavily shadowed eyes, their sunken cheeks and exposed teeth, and the black blisters and boils of the plague. They were all ages, men with bald heads, women with white wisps of hair, middle-aged bearded labourers and shop workers, and housewives in smocks, and young people of nineteen or twenty but all stick-thin, with lurching gates and arched backs, signs of the starvation that had left them vulnerable to the disease. There were even families, couples walking through the moonlight hand in hand, parents leading their children, and the ghosts were aware of each other's presence. As they passed on the way, men would lift their hats, women would bow, exchanging a few silent words of greeting. Because that was the other striking thing, the only sound was Bill's breath as she recovered from chasing the small girl up the alleyway. None of the ghosts made a noise, not a word, not a footstep. She watched as one man with a fine-looking long coat strutted by, walking through a puddle without disturbing the surface. It was like they were three-dimensional images, projected not on a screen but into the air. Holograms? Bill didn't feel frightened. She felt strangely calm and detached, like drifting off to sleep. The ghost didn't seem to be aware of her presence, 
The little girl she had followed had disappeared into the crowd, darting between the legs of the adults until Bill could follow her no more. One of the ghosts, a stern-looking woman with large eyes like overripe fruit, suddenly turned towards Bill. Bill shuddered and pressed herself against the wall, and the ghost walked straight past, down the passageway, completely oblivious. Bill let out a deep breath of relief and tentatively walked onto the street. She made sure to keep her distance from the ghosts, not wanting to draw attention to herself, not wanting to do that whole ghost walks through you thing. They were ghosts, they could do that. She could take that as red. Instead, she approached the old toll booth, keeping to one side of the street. A crowd of ghosts had gathered around an unremarkable alleyway opposite the prison. They seemed to be waiting their turn to enter the side street, as the entrance was only wide enough to allow two people to enter at once. Bill approached cautiously, and as she drew closer, she saw that inside the alleyway the ground dropped away into total blackness. Bill waited until all the ghosts had disappeared into the darkness, then approached the alleyway, keeping her torch trained on the ground in front of her. She raised the torch beam up the side of the passageway, where it picked out a rudimentary street sign, Mary King's Close. Keeping the torchlight trained on the steps, Bill slowly made her way down. She didn't quite know why, but it was as if something had drawn her to this place, as though the blackness was sucking her in. And once again she got the strange shiver of déjà vu, as though this was a moment from a long-forgotten nightmare. What was that smell? It was familiar, a chemistry lab smell, like rotten eggs. Her torchlight picked out a drifting fog, and Bill felt the insides of her nostrils begin to sting. She breathed through her mouth, and it stung her throat, a dry, burning sensation. And that was the other strange thing. The air here was warm, like standing outside a Greg's on a winter's day. She reached the bottom of the steps where the street continued ahead of her, winding ever downward into the impenetrable dark. Even her torchlight had no effect on the blackness. The street remained narrow, no wider than two metres. Above her, the street was crisscrossed with lines from which hung grey sheets, like sleeping bats, blocking off any view of the upper levels, turning the alleyway into a tunnel. It was like she was descending into a cave. Somewhere ahead of her, a child was crying while its mother sang a low, mournful lullaby. And then there was raucous laughter and chatter and shouts of anger, a woman bawling, Get out! You are a drunkard and a wastrel when you are alive, Joe Larry. Now you're dead, won't you leave us be? Get yourself to hell where you belong. Bill's torch suddenly revealed a crowd of ghosts in a square surrounded by wooden-beamed houses. There were so many, packed so tightly, It was like the overspill of a heaving in. Ghosts of gnarled, pinched faces of men and women sat on the doorsteps, treading malicious gossip. Ghosts of broken-nosed, burly men prowled the balconies, fuming at those inside the house to let them in. Open the door! I'll drag you down with me! The ghosts of young women wandered aimlessly through the throng, their faces blank with horror, bundles of rags clutched to their breasts. Bill felt an ache in her chest at the misery of it all, the pity. The ghosts, desperate to return to their loved ones, couldn't understand why they were being turned away. And their loved ones were probably huddling in terror in the darkness, holding their children close, hoping these apparitions of cruel husbands, unfaithful wives and spiteful elderly relations would leave them alone. It was a vision of utter wretchedness as though all the anguish, the bitterness and heartbreak was a physical force, 
a black wall pushing her away. The little girl that Bill had followed was there. As she was picked out in Bill's torchlight, she turned to face Bill, staring directly into the beam. Her eyes were the colour of sour milk, her hair hideously pale, her lips black. She opened her mouth and screamed, a howl of pure hatred, the loathing of the dead for the living. Then the other ghosts turned towards Bill and opened their mouths to reveal black toothless holes. Bill felt a sudden rush of hot air against her face, making her skin prickle, like looking into an open oven. Her throat gagged at the acrid stench. The ghost then joined in with a little girl's scream, some howling, others moaning, others cursing. And then they started to walk slowly up the street towards her, their eyes burning with anger. Her stomach churning, Bill retreated, turned and ran up the street as quickly as she could. So thank you very much to Kate for the for that great reading there. So that's Thanks, quite... Kate. It's, um, it's a pretty creepy scene, isn't it? Very creepy, especially the way she reads it. So uh, at that point, um, Billy's on the run from, from all the ghosts. Well, the doctor decides that he yeah. is not going to save Thomas because Catherine's father, Thomas, is now stricken with the plague. Yes. In fact, Thomas is so far gone that the night doctor comes to visit. And the doctor gets a chance now to meet the night doctor face to face, or in this case, face to mask. And this is where we learn that we are not dealing with the straight-up historical anymore about one-third of the way through the book. Because the doctor deduces that the night doctor is the product of alien technology. Yeah, because when he, he looks through the goggles, he realizes that there isn't actually anybody anybody in the mask, doesn't he? That it's, the night uh, doctor is hollow, a hollow man. Yeah, like an Omega uh, it's kind of situation, isn't it? It's, uh... <laughs> Very good, yes. Just like Omega. <laughs> um I quite like there's um there's a bit where the doctor is uh investigating it and it, I thought it was a it was a good piece of characterization of the of the twelfth doctor um when he says um statement anyone visited by the night doctor will soon die conjecture nobody can die without being visited by the night doctor first uh it's kind of how he talks isn't it in in stories like listen when he's speculating about the you know the kind of the perfect hunters that that uh he believes might be in listen. Um, yes, and that, where he narrates the story just off camera. Yeah, and that kind of uh, lecturer kind of way of speaking as well about statement, conjecture, that kind of thing. Um, I thought it was uh, yeah a good way of, um, of of bringing his characterization to life. Morris captures Capaldi phenomenally well, and so did Michael Tucker in Diamond Dogs. But yeah. Jonathan Morris gets an A plus for the way he gets Capaldi's voice. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, yeah, the sort of the the mercurial way he is, and the uh, the quick wittedness, and the, and the way he can flip as well uh, from from serious to funny. It's uh, yeah, it's all really well well played out here. Yes. So at this point, at the end of chapter six, we're about one third of the way through. So the doctor steps outside, and he is quickly attacked by some sort of slithering entity. Yeah. Um, which we don't we don't know what that is for a little while, and it just disappears, doesn't it? Um, and then he well, it disappears to it disappears to the doctor's eye, but it doesn't disappear. Yeah. Uh, so they they take him back to Thomas and um, Isabel's house. And um, Bill now has an extra supply of antibiotics. So the first thing Bill does is tries to cure Thomas. Yeah. And the doctor realizes that Bill has broken his rule, and the doctor says, you can't do that. 
Yeah. And Bill gets off a bit of righteous anger, and she says, I'm not like you. I can't not get involved. I have to help. Yeah. And the doctor says, this is a very Capaldi part. The doctor says, no, I mean, you didn't have to do it because I had already given him a pill last night. Yeah. <laughs> so now the doctor and Bill have both cured Thomas, even though, what's the rule? Don't cure anybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it, it's very, it's very, very well played, isn't it? I think because the doctor in the TARDIS, when he's not face to face with the plague victim, it's easy for him to say, no, we can't cure anybody. You know, we, we can't do any of that. But then when he's there with the family and they've lost the daughter, um, it does bring out his, his human side, doesn't it? It's, uh, he has to help, yes, and he yeah. does. That's it. Um, so the at this point, the, 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 the night doctor arrives again. But in this instance, there is actually somebody in the, uh, in the, behind the mask, uh, which is a new character introduced, is Annabelle Ray, who's the daughter of the, the plague doctor who's actually died. He was um, one of the first to die, but she was his only child. He's already trained her in the medical arts. Yeah. She's trying to pick up where he left off. She is wearing the night doctor's outfit, but she is not there at night. She's visiting during the day. And unlike the Night Doctor, she has a voice and she has a face under the mask. Yeah. And she quickly becomes our pseudo-companion for most of the rest of the story. Yeah. Um, and she talks about how the ghost started appearing about five, six weeks ago, um, which is about the time. And she talks about how the only ghost that never appears is her father, which felt like it was going to be significant, but it never really paid off, did it? Well, it makes sense logically. Because that was, I guess, you didn't, you didn't need the Night Doctor at that point because the plague had just started. Yeah. And the entity that occupied the Night Doctor didn't, I guess, get the idea until after the man who wore the outfit, uh, the original Doctor, perished. But you're right, that is sort of a dangling thread that we have to resolve by our own cleverness. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it seemed like... Yeah, I was, I was, I was, yeah, I wasn't sure about it. It was only kind of when I went back through it, I thought, oh, yeah, that didn't seem to, uh, that didn't seem to go anywhere. But saying that, there is, um, there is suggestion that Annabelle already has a lot of grief because she sees, she sees so many people who are dying, doesn't she? And that will come back and be significant towards the end of the story. Yeah. So at this point, the the provost summons everybody. Um, because he's now contracted the plague. Uh, and the doctor, for the first time, discovers that there's a, a black jelly-like blob um, attached to his stomach, which only shows up um, when he scans it with the sonic screwdriver. Um, in that It becomes visible, and, and the characters can only see it at that point, because it's a microsecond out of phase. And he scans everybody else, and at that point, nobody else has one of these uh, these leeches stuck to them. And the doctor decides that, having already cured Thomas, he decides he's allowed as a Time Lord to save one more life. Yeah, <laughs> he gives Provost an antibiotic as well. Yeah, he doesn't. He does that the next time he visits, doesn't he? Um, there's, um, I think they leave. Um, that the night doctor comes to visit the provost in chapter eight, and that's where the doctor decides to cure him. Yeah, I thought I thought that scene actually because the the night doctor comes in, 
Um, and at first you don't know the doctor's there and he switches on a lamp or lights a lamp um, and says, I've been expecting you. I thought that was quite a James Bond kind of moment for the doctor. It's like in, in um, Dr. No when um, he's waiting in his hotel room for, uh, for Dent to arrive. Uh, who's going yes. to assassinate him and he, he shoots, but it's just, pillow, you know, he kind of shoots into the bed where Bond has left the pillows. Um, and Bond is sitting in the corner by the lamp, yes. Yeah, he can, and, and even in kind of saying I've been expecting you is, a, is quite, a, quite a Bond thing as well, isn't it? Um, but it's also, a, you can see Capaldi doing this very, very easily. Yeah, definitely. The, there's this, um, in Deep Breath, Capaldi's first story, um, I mean, it's not like a specific Bond quote or anything, but when he has his, um, his kind of uh, showdown with the clockwork man at the end of the story, uh, and he's drinking whiskey and he says something like, um, I think I might have to kill you, uh, so uh, I wanted to have a drink first. There was something quite James Bond about that as well. Um, yes. And then, of course, he does the, the Union Jack parachute jump, doesn't he, in the Zygon 2 party from, from Series 9 as well. That's right, very James Bond. Uh, yeah, because I know Stephen Moffat's a big James Bond fan, and he... He does kind of bring that sort of stuff into Sherlock as well. Uh, so, yeah, I wonder if it was, a, it was a bit of a homage to that. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, yeah. And, of course, this being Jonathan Morris, we have multiple Tom Baker homages. At one point, the expression, sleep is for tortoises, enters the story. Yeah. Um, Classic Tom Baker quote. Definitely. I think it's, um, it is, it's said aloud in, the, in, the, in, the, in this series that this is set in as well, isn't it, in series 10? I can't remember which story it is. But I'm sure at some point that the Twelfth Doctor says that. Um, I need to check what story it is, though. Um, I'll keep an ear out for that when I do my rewatch. Yeah. It's, so at uh, this point yeah. in Chapter 8, all the various threads are starting to coalesce. We've talked about the Ninth Doctor paying a visit. I should point out that before the Ninth Doctor visits the Provost, or as we say here in the U.S., Provost, at this point, Nardole is in Annabelle's house, and he watches her doctor costume inflate out of thin air and become the night doctor and detach itself from the hook and float out the door yes on its way to the provost yeah and in the same chapter bill finally figures out that agnes has died and is now a ghost who only visits betsy once in a while that's it uh, yeah which is the secret that betsy was uh, was trying to keep from her she's been reluctant to let bill in uh, after the first visit wasn't she she was uh so um, yeah, we find out now that's what she was that's what she was trying to hide, um, and the scene that I mentioned where um, Nardol was, was keeping watch that was when he was at Annabelle's house and he was he was keeping an eye on the on the plague doctor outfit, wasn't he? Uh, and that was the bit as I say where he's congratulated himself that he hasn't even gone to the toilet, which, <laughs> which and he decides not to tell the doctor because the satisfaction yeah. of a job well done yeah. is enough. <laughs> And it also reminded me of uh, in Diamond Dogs, the last book that we we discussed. Um, the the reason that the, the story kicks off in that one is that the Doctor goes to the the space station to steal a diamond um, to, to to sell for his expenses. And one of the ones that he mentions is toilet paper for Nardole, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. So I, I wondered if that was, um, you know, the product of the uh, of the authors kind of collaborating with each other to uh, to carry some themes over. We're definitely learning a lot more about Nardole than I ever bargained for. Yeah. <laughs> but now we have the Night Doctor costume, and we know that it's formed out of thin air, and we know that it's alien technology. So the Doctor now follows the Night Doctor, 
that he witnesses a scene that is pretty much at the halfway point of the book, right out of Rise of the Cybermen, where you have Night Doctor stopping a group of villagers in their tracks and inducing a series of emotions in them one after another. Yeah. And at this point, I haven't figured out what the big bad's motivation is. So this scene comes out of left field. And it was a little hard for me to process as I was reading it. But then the night yeah. doctor leaves behind the villagers and goes back to collect Thomas. But Thomas has already been cured of the plague. So there's a very creepy moment where Thomas and Isabel open the door, and it's the night doctor. And Thomas says, I've been cured. Why are you here? And the night doctor attacks Thomas and Isabel. And if this was a two-part story, that would be our episode one cliffhanger. Yeah, because we, we're not quite sure what um, what's happened there. Are we points his staff at them? Um, and I was afraid at this point that we were going to learn that the doctor's interference by saving Thomas was causing temporal ramifications. Yeah. And I was afraid that I thought it was there to kill Thomas and Isabel and make things right. Fortunately, this story is not that dark, so I was able yeah. to set aside that fear pretty quickly. Yeah. So this is our clue to the second half of the story yeah, as to why the Night Doctor or whatever is driving the Night Doctor is doing what it's doing. We learn that the emotions of the Edinburgh residents in the middle of the plague are pretty much a key to what is going on. Yeah, so as you say, there's the scene where they, they're all desperately sad, then ecstatically happy, uh, and then they all start to get angry, don't they? Um, which even yes. affects Bill until the doctor can kind of get her away from the situation and uh, uh, and calm her down a bit. Right. Um, and then at this point around here, the doctor also realizes that the the leeches, the one he the one that he found on um, on John Smith, is no longer there because uh, he's recovered, but it's now attached to the doctor. Yes. Um. Also, he goes to see Thomas and Isabel after this. They have leeches attached as well. Uh, and well, lost... we have to get one mm. meta joke out of the way before we come to that. The doctor's trying to figure out how to view the leeches on Thomas' stomach. Mm. And the doctor starts muttering, as he does, if I can de-interface the phase displacement. Devil talk, muttered Thomas. The doctor snorts. No, technobabble. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a great bit of, that's like Capaldi diffusing the tension out of the situation right there. Yeah. But yeah. we learn that these horrific, gross leeches are now attached to a Thomas and I believe Isabel as well. Yeah. And they've also lost all memory of their daughter, Catherine, um, who is only still at this point, obviously very recently died. And at the same time, the leeches on their stomach have shriveled up and become atrophied because they no longer are experiencing grief. Yeah, which, um, which we... we about all in this scene, the doctor realizes that leeches are feeding on uh, on their grief, um, and that's where the, the, the leeches are called the grief leeches, which is a great name. Grief yeah. leeches, very evocative. Um, and the doctor manages to communicate with the one that's attached to him um, to find out a little bit more, and this kind of confirms his theory that they're feeding on the grief um, and gives some clues as to where they've come from as well. Uh, so he. They remove the, their, all their respective leeches, um, and it's quite, a, quite an emotional scene where he discusses whether or not to give Thomas and Isabel their memories um, of Catherine back, because obviously that comes with the pain of the grief as well. 
and they decide that they would rather remember her uh, and live with the grief. Which uh, and the doctor kindly chooses to restore their grief, mm. and at the exact moment that he does this, the two dormant grief leeches in the corner rev back into life and make a beeline straight for Thomas and Isabel. Yeah. And the doctor and Annabelle have to intervene and get the leeches out of the way. Fortunately, there's a roaring fire. Yeah. <laughs> in Thomas Isabel's tenement, so the grief leeches are quickly done for. Yeah. Um, which yeah, is a nice scene for Annabelle that as well, isn't it? She kind of just leaps into action, doesn't she? So they um, yes. They head back to Saint Mary's Close, which is uh, also known as the Street of Sorrows, which is where. Bill originally saw the highest concentration of ghosts um, earlier on, which is which is in the reading that we had. Um, and when the doctor is trying to communicate with the grief leech, Bill tries to ask, "Did you come from King Mary's clothes?" Yeah. <laughs> and the doctor snaps back, "It's an alien leech. It doesn't read street signs." Yeah. <laughs> but Bill is on the right track. Yeah. Uh, so so they make their way. To, to the close, and they find, uh, basically make their way down into a cellar and find a hole that leads deeper underground. Uh, and as they go down, they, they can hear it. This was what I thought was great, a, a slithering sound, like somebody wading through Swarfaga, which is a <laughs> yes, really yes. nice, uh, nice in-joke, isn't it? Yes. Now, that being the substance that was used in Inferno to simulate the alien slime that yeah. turns the scientists into uh, werewolves. That's it. I think I think I think it's used, been used a few times as well. I um I think it's the the rutan in um, the horror of Fang Rock. Yes, when the rutan is uh, melted, it is uh, when its remains are slithering down the stairs. Yeah, I've got to say, I know it's any kind of a, a sound a sound effect that um, that was was used in the classic series quite a bit. Because um, yeah. one of those things. I've only ever heard of, of Swarfiga in the context of a Doctor Who sound effect. <laughs> um, it's not commercially available in the, in the United States, so I've never been able to actually buy it and squish it around myself. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, something I remember looking up when I was younger because I had no idea what it was. Um, and it's, um, it's one of those things I thought, oh, it's something I would eventually come across when I, you know, as an adult, um, but never, ever have. <laughs> Um, You'll have to seek that out and report back next time. Yeah, that's it. Well, because it's um, it's a heavy-duty cleaning, a hand cleaner that's used in engineering and construction, uh, apparently. Um, but I'm not like a proper man that works with machinery or anything, so uh, <laughs> I'm unlikely to ever come across it in, uh, in real life. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I work in the legal industry where we do not use hand cleaner very often. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the same. I work in, in finance and, um, yeah, don't really need, um, yeah, heavy duty <laughs> and cleaner like that. Um, so the doctor and Nardole and Bill and Annabelle now descend into the bowels of Edinburgh and they hear the Swarthega sound and they are surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands, like Indiana Jones going into the cellar and seeing rats, they are yeah. surrounded by thousands of leeches. yeah. And this being a Doctor Who story, they of course must walk through the leeches to get to the next part of their destination. Yeah, it's it's pretty grim that as well, isn't it? Uh, quite kind of queasy descriptions of it. Um, and there is a reference shortly after this to Indiana Jones as well, isn't there? Um, of course. Which I thought was uh, was quite nice, and it ties into the 
the series 10 thing of, of Bill telling the doctor about movies um, and, and him never having heard of them or kind of being quite dismissive because uh, they describe the scene in, um, it's the last crusade, isn't it? I think where yes. there's the, um, the invisible um, kind of bridge over the, uh, the crevasse. Uh, and, the doc, and the doctor says, and of course, the audience immediately <laughs> said, no, face on, basic death perception, that could never happen. Yeah, and he goes, oh, no, wait, does Indiana Jones only have one eye? <laughs> yes, and my note on this is leave Indiana Jones out of it. It's yeah. one of my favorite movies. Yeah, no, yeah, I feel a bit like that as well. Um, but it, it reminded the 12th Doctor um, when, the, when the little boy in The Return of Doctor Mysterio is telling him about Spider-Man. Uh, and yes. he says he's, he's bitten by a radioactive spider. And he goes, uh, what happens then? And uh, he goes, well, he gets radiation poisoning. Or <laughs> he <laughs> takes everything incredibly literally, doesn't he? Or in the three-part episode with the, the monks from outer space, the doctor starts talking about Moby Dick. Shut up and get to the whale. Yeah. <laughs> this, this was the summer that I actually read Moby Dick for the first time. It took me about four months, and I had the same yeah. sentiment. Yeah. Shut up and get to the whale. <laughs> The doctor is very unsentimental about great earth literature. It turns out. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, and movies. The uh, there's also the uh, in the in Last Christmas, isn't there? About the um, they talk about Alien, and he goes, "There's a horror movie called Alien." <laughs> no, so offensive. No, <laughs> that's one, right. That's right. No wonder you're always getting invaded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as the um, they they make their way deep underground and realize that they are directly underneath Arthur's seat, which is another, well, it's a, it's a new series tradition, isn't it, of, um, of there being either alien bases or secret bases underneath uh, very famous monuments in, around Britain. Um, and Arthur's a, seat is not a monument that I was familiar with coming here from New York, so that was, that was, that was a trip to Wikipedia for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I quickly picked it up in context. Yeah. Um, well, actually, there's, um, I, I read on Jonathan Morris's blog um, that the origins of this story came from a, a comic strip that he'd, um, uh, I think, he, a proposal that he'd done, which was for the Eleventh Doctor and Amy. Um, and in the original story, there was a secret research base under Edinburgh Castle, um, with but still the uh, the alien part of it being under Arthur's seat as as it has remained in the novel. Um, so I think oh! he was thinking along those lines, uh, even when he originally came up with this idea of being, there's something being under Edinburgh, uh, that it has to be under uh, <laughs> under a famous uh, castle or monument, the way UNIT have the base under the Tower of London now, and the uh, uh, the uh, the were, were under the Thames Barrier, weren't they, and then that kind of thing. So. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so they as, they as they go deeper underground, they first of all they meet a woolly mammoth, uh, which is a very out of left field moment. But then it ties in, and he explains it later on why it has to be a, a woolly mammoth. And then in another claustrophobic bit, he's getting very good at writing claustrophobic moments. Bill gets separated from the rest and finds herself trapped by a rock wall enclosure that is closing in on her. Yeah. She's about to get squashed before all of a sudden the walls fall away and the doctor rescues her. And we learn that whatever is behind this is sending a series of psychic barriers to keep them out. Yeah. 
uh, and he, he talks about how they uh, plays on their basic primal fears. So the first one is um, the woolly mammoth. So it's, it's kind of a predator. Um, then it's claustrophobia, and the third one is is vertigo because there's a a huge chasm in front of them, uh, which it uh, throws an apple down and they don't hear it land, so there's seemingly no way over it um, until the doctor kind of figures that it's a uh, it's another kind of psychic projection that's just to keep them away, uh, and they all just kind of leap into it and, and realize it's not really there. Uh, there was no chasm at all; they just land on solid ground. Yeah, and there's another quite a meta thing where he kind of seems to hark back to Death to the Daleks and the Five Doctors when he says, uh, you know, what what next? Is it a maze or a bit of hopscotch? Uh, that's, uh... <laughs> oh, yes. Richard Herndall reciting the numerical value of pi as he tosses coins across the chessboard. Yeah, um, which is another thing, I suppose, like, like Swarfager. Uh, when I was a kid, I thought, well, I'll understand that when I'm older. Once I've... Um, once I've, uh, you know, kind of studied Pi at school, I'll understand what he's going on about there. <laughs> That's another thing which, no, it still doesn't make any sense now that I know what Pi actually is. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you watch the special edition of The Five Doctors, it turns out he got the numbers all wrong and they had to go back and dub it later. Ah, really? I didn't know that. So in the special edition, he's, and they use the original audio, so he gets all the numbers wrong. Right. <laughs> so it wouldn't even have worked. <laughs> Um, uh, so after after passing the various obstacles that have been put in their way, they find um, a squashed sphere with uh, with kind of spikes or antennae coming out of it, um, which is kind of sitting in a in a lava pool where where lava's kind of splattered all over it and damaged it, uh, and they realise that this is volcanic activity under Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, and uh, as we learn, this is a this is a psycholops, uh, a sentient spaceship um, that uh, crash landed here centuries ago, um, um, having been infected with the grief leeches, and 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 it's the psycholops that brought the grief leeches to Earth. Hence the woolly mammoth, because when the psycholops arrived, it was early mankind, and the woolly mammoth was still around. So, it was, so the uh, Cyclops thought the woolly mammoth was still out there and was doing what it had done 30,000 years ago. Yeah. Using the woolly mammoth to keep the early hominids away. Yeah. Which it reminded me a bit of the TARDIS, really, that uh, it was, uh, you know, having kind of taken a shape that which uh, no longer has any relevance. Um, but yeah, it's still, uh, <laughs> it's still in place. But the Cyclops had gone dormant and had fallen asleep, but the outbreak of plague had unleashed so much emotion in the town that it woke up. Yeah. And the, so the, and the grief is having a, a dual effect in that it's, it's feeding the grief leeches and they're, they're reproducing as well. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's poisoning the cyclops, making it weaker. And there's suddenly dual possession. The cyclops begins yeah. speaking through Nardole. Yeah. But then it turns out that Annabelle has the mother of all grief leeches attached to her body and her head. Yeah, and that's controlling yeah, the grief her. Leech sort of takes over. Uh, so she, she uh, under control of the grief leeches, plugs herself into the, uh, the frontal lobe of the cyclops uh, and starts um, amplifying Annabelle's grief 
uh, and in basically injecting it directly into the cyclops's brain, weakening it further. Uh, and the idea is that the cyclops is plugging the volcanic vent. Then if the cyclops dies, there's going to be a massive volcanic explosion that is going to destroy Edinburgh, which we know did not happen in 1645. But if Edinburgh is destroyed, the quarantine is ended, and the grief yeah. leeches can affix themselves to the villagers and escape and affect the entire planet. Yeah, um, and the yeah they're playing it quite ruthlessly, aren't they? Because the uh, speaking to Annabelle, they say, well. Most of us will die, but a few of us will survive. Um, and with the, like, say, with the quarantine lifted, they can spread out all over the world at that point. Uh, so it's um, which yeah. brings us to the most shocking story because, as, as a pseudo companion, you expect that Annabelle is going to survive throughout the entire book, yeah, and is going to learn from the sister and is going to go forth and become a wonderful female physician. But unfortunately, she doesn't even make it out of the chapter at this point. No, the, the doctor's about to kind of make the really difficult decision to unplug her by pulling her hands out of the Cyclops' frontal lobe, um, which they think might kill her, but then she announces, I'm already dead, uh, and collapses anyway, doesn't she? Um, but yeah, like you say, it, yes. has, it had been directing you up to that point, because Bill has been inadvertently given her clues about modern medicine and the future of medicine. And the thought, doctor usually uh, keeps saying, "No clues, no clues." Yeah, but you thought it might, it, yeah, it might be that she would play a part in in advancing medicine at that point. Yeah, so it, it was definitely a surprise death. Uh, like you say, there isn't, um, it, it wasn't telegraphed at all. It was quite shocking. Um, and now we have a countdown. We now learn from the Cyclops that it has one hour to go before it's going to die and before the volcano is going to destroy the town. So the doctor and Bill now have one hour to escape the underground volcanic shaft, contact the authorities and save the day, and Nardole being Nardole, he is unable to get out of the chamber because of the, because of the lava flow. He's too afraid to get out. Yeah. So he stays behind ground and sort of checks out of the plot for the next few chapters while the doctor and Bill resume center stage. Yeah, and it, it makes the task even more difficult. It, seem, it seems huge at this point, doesn't it? Kind of insurmountable because they've got to uh, somehow rescue Nardole, uh, stop the grief leeches, either stop the volcanic eruption or evacuate Edinburgh, but they know that that didn't happen, so they have to uh, you know, try and keep, keep history on, uh, on course. Uh, and the doctor has to intervene and replace all the negative emotions. And, of course, the doctor being the 12th doctor, you assume there's going to be a musical interlude at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and the doctor says, it makes two verses because I'm happy to sort this one out. If yeah. that's not the correct title for the song, I don't care. It's not relevant right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's not the title of the song, but everyone knows what song he's talking about. Yeah. He, um, he goes and grabs yeah. Thomas and Isabel. Uh, and then he next appears um, with the uh, the sunglasses on, the electric guitar, and they're carrying an amplifier each, aren't they? While he uh, he plays the Smiths, <laughs> um, and it's a kind of a yes, this again comes to the point where, as an American, I only knew one of the four songs that the Doctor plays, but he stages an impromptu concert of emo music. Yeah, I I didn't know any of them. I, I don't know anything about music at all, really. I never really listened to music, so. Uh, I just YouTubed a couple of them just to kind of get a flavour uh, of what they were like. 
Um, for a bonus, we should set up a YouTube playlist for our viewers who want to hear the four songs in action. Yeah, that's it. I will. Uh, I will put links in the show notes to uh, to the songs that are on there. That's a good idea, uh, and also to the and relevant. Then, like Rockstar, the doctor emerges from the fog and begins playing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's proper twelfth doctor moment, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so uh, it, yes, it's a kind of a Pied Piper of Hamlin situation because uh, what they realise before they leave the volcanic chamber is that the the grief of the psycholops is drawing some of the the, the leeches back underground, where they're then being destroyed by the lava. Um, but it's only yep. the ones that are near enough to be affected. Uh, so, but by using the amplifier and the electric guitar, the doctor is able to stage a concert that all the leeches detach themselves from the villagers and yeah. go back underground to be consumed by the lava. That's it, because he's talked about um, his own grief a couple of times earlier in the book, That because he's lived such a long life and he's, he's been around so much that he, he is carrying a lot of grief. Um, so he uses the... Uh, the also carrying a very big leak. Yeah. Uh, so it's, um, he talks about he's using the music to express his own feelings of grief. So he draws the leeches back underground where, where they're destroyed in the, uh, in the molten lava. Yes. Yeah, the only song that I knew was Creep by Radiohead. The other three went over my head. Right. I, uh, yes. Uh, but I'm sure for... <laughs> Hopefully most of the core audience got all the references in a way that I did not. But it gets the point across. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's a great idea. Like I said, I will, I'll put a link in the in the show notes. That's uh, uh, and also to the relevant blog entries about this book on Jonathan Morris's blog because they're uh, they're an interesting read too. Uh, so uh, so the other thing actually they found out where, with the cyclops is that the cyclops is behind the apparitions uh, of the ghosts. Um, he's because the cyclops has tried to counteract the grief leeches by giving the bereaved their loved ones back. Um, although it hasn't quite worked because they've been terrified of, of the ghosts of their, <laughs> their relatives. Uh, so he's the one that's been creating the copies using the Night Doctor's um, costume as, a, as how to get into the houses, create the copies and the ghosts uh, in the hope that, that people wouldn't be grieving anymore. And he also removes Thomas and Isabel's memory of ever having had a daughter, so that they are physically blocked from remembering their daughter died, and it takes away their grief by giving them amnesia. Yeah, so that's like the, the next stage of the plan, isn't it? The, the ghosts not having worked. Um, the next thing that the Cyclops is going to try is, uh, is amnesia. Uh, so I like the way it's, it's worked out like that, that um, the, uh, what, what you think is going to be the... The kind of the villain, which are the ghosts and the things like that, aren't really there. They're actually part of the solution. Right. And then the Doctor concludes his concert with a large shout-out to Back to the Future by beginning to play a very elaborate blues riff. Yeah. And then he goes, I guess you lot aren't ready for that yet. Yeah. But your great-grandchildren <laughs> are going to love it. Yeah. Which is a direct Back to the Future quote. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it was cool on that. Um, and at that point, this is when the, uh, like you say, the, the, the kind of the Jonathan Morris, uh, uh, of the story comes in where he goes back in time, uh, picks up the night doctor outfit from Annabelle's house, um, which he does the, the night before Bill notices it was missing in the morning 
um, when they'd left, to, I think, to go to the Lord Provost's house or something like that. And she said, oh, she just kind of notes to herself that she was expecting the outfit to be there and it isn't. So having picked up the, the Plague Doctor outfit, he travels further back in time um, to visit Thomas and Isabel's house. Uh, so the second time that the Night Doctor in the, uh, in the kind of prologue visits and takes Kathy away, we now learn it was actually the Doctor in the Night Doctor costume. Um, because he figured out that the only time the Night Doctor ever did that was for Catherine. It didn't fit the pattern of the of the other visits. Which means that it was not the Night Doctor, but it could have been him the whole time. Yeah. So he he, um, he takes um, Kathy, cures Kathy of the plague, takes her back to the Psychrolops where he's left Thomas and Isabel, um, and reunites the family, which is enough to heal the Psychrolops. Um, because it's enough kind of positive emotion and, uh, and, and love, isn't it, that um, the Psycholops is no longer weakened, so can, uh, can, can stop the volcanic eruption from happening. It ends up needing to use a little bit of a lava flow to vent off the pressure. But yeah. There's a very minor eruption that just destroys the one street where the grief leeches had been lured back down underground. Mary King's close. Yeah. But yes, it prevents the explosion that would have destroyed the entire city. And the Cyclops survives and is able to plug the hole for the rest of time and will always be there. Yeah. And um, creates uh, an amnesia field um, so that people kind of will gradually forget the fact that the, the city was infested with ghosts um, of, the, of the recently departed. And the doctor has also converted Catherine into a living cure. And this is used for an explanation as to why there are many fewer outbreaks of plague after the mid-17th century. Yeah. Because Catherine spreads the cure to everybody that she meets yeah. going forward. Yeah. It's, uh... So we have what has been a very grim and downbeat novel up until this point. Suddenly it becomes very joyful and optimistic. Yeah. And, and everything is neatly resolved, but... But not easily. It's it's kind of uh, it's kind of hard won as well, isn't it? Because they lose Annabelle along the way, and uh, it's uh, it. I thought it was a very satisfying conclusion. She winds up being the only proper death in the novel because the provost does not die, Thomas does not die of the plague, Catherine comes back to life, Agnes remains dead, but her ghost is able to pay one final visit to Betsy, and they have a little bit of closure. Yeah. Yeah, and we never so knew... Annabelle is really the only character who dies over the course of the events of the novel. My Captain all the plague victims who died before chapter one. That's it, yeah, because Agnes we never saw alive, did we? Yeah. Never saw her alive. To say, at one point, it seemed there was so much to do and everything was going to be so overwhelming. Um, like the amount, the sheer amount that they had to solve. Um, so, yeah, it was good that, uh, that from that point on, Everything the the clues from earlier on all pay off, um, and it's uh, and it's a great conclusion to the book. Jonathan Morris, being Jonathan Morris, he has plotted the book within every inch of its life. So the second half yeah. flies by, and everything that happens in the first half has a corresponding revelation in the second half that saves the day. And events happen very very quickly in the second half of the book. Yeah, and of course you have the bonus of a fairly happy ending. Yeah. 
And we even pay a visit back to the 21st century to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So yeah. Bill finally gets where she wanted to go the whole time. Yeah, and then um, she passes up the opportunity for uh, an Edinburgh ghost tour, doesn't she? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good. And um, and again, a bit like the, the Eaters of Light, isn't it, where they... Uh, well, it's kind of bookended by a visit to to the modern day area of Scotland that it's set in. I think I say all. I think all three of the the books that came out this year for the Twelve Talks have been really strong. Uh, this probably just edges it as my favourite. I think. Yeah, this is Good. probably my favourite of the three. It wasn't looking that way halfway through, but the ending yeah. of the novel and the Jonathan Morris temporal paradoxes and the. Uh, very clever ending. Really puts it over the top. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, and uh, yeah, it's very atmospheric and very funny. You've got the Doctor and Bill and Nardole firing on all cylinders. You've got your pop culture jokes about Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Very satisfying book in the end. Definitely, uh, that's great. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It was a pleasure discussing this book with you. Thanks um, for having me back, Mark. Always a pleasure. Hope to do it again sometime. Definitely, we'll uh, we will arrange something for 2018. Um, yes. Thank you very much, Kate Coleman, for providing the the excellent reading uh, for this week's podcast. Um, and join me next time on the Trotman Podcast. In the meantime, you can uh, find Jason on Twitter. Um, I'll let you do that bit. If, uh, I am at Doctor Who Novels, Dr Who Novels, and also Dr Who Novels at WordPress.com. It's great. It's um, an excellent blog. Um, which which book are you covering next? I am still stuck in the late 1970s novelizations. As real life gets in the way, I have not posted an entry in a while. Hopefully 2018 we'll see the resumption of the project. Excellent. Uh, we'll look forward to that. So thanks again, and thanks for listening. Join me next time on the Trot One Podcast. Thank you.